The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello. Well, this is not Mary Woods. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge, and Mary's taking a week off this week. And I'm lucky to have with me today in our studio, or really our office here, Diane Davey. Diane Davey is the program director at the OCD Institute, a residential treatment program and research site at McLean Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, specializing in the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder, She's also the president of the Obsessive Compulsive Foundation, a national advocacy group dedicating to ed- dedicated to educating people about OCD, helping patients find appropriate treatment, training treatment providers, and raising money for research. Diane received her undergraduate degree in nursing from Boston College and her master's in business administration from BU, Boston University. And prior to working at the OCD Institute, she worked in several other capacities at McLean Hospital and was also the program director of an independent venture called Community-Based Services, which provided in-home services primarily to people with OCD. So, hi, Diane. Hello. Um, So, Diane, tell me, I'm interested how you got into um, the treatment of OCD. Well, it really was, um, I was working at McLean in... Uh, on a cognitive behavioral therapy unit that treated a lot of mood and anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. So it was more than just OCD, but primarily uh, people with mood problems, anxiety problems. And we did see quite a few OCD patients, and this was, gosh, maybe 15 years ago or so. And um, around that same time was when I got involved with this group called Community-Based Services, which was uh, providing in-home psychiatric services to, it wasn't really meant to be specifically for OCD patients, but it turned out that those were the the large majority of the patients that we saw that needed help really at home were people with OCD who were stuck in their houses, couldn't get out, couldn't really function well. and really weren't getting good treatment in traditional psychiatric units. And um, along that that same time, uh, Mike Jenicky, who is the medical director at the OCD Institute and also works at the Mass General Hospital, had the idea of starting a residential treatment program specifically for these difficult-to-treat OCD patients and they had asked me to come and help get the program started. So that was sort of my, my back door into treating OCD. It's interesting because initially you don't think of people with OCD as being so um, impaired or disabled right. that they can't leave their home. Right. Um, but in fact, this can be the case. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and that that's really the majority of the people that we see are people who are so sick, who really are, and are, they've really been alienated from traditional psychiatric treatment because a lot of them don't tend to be all that crisis-oriented. So they, in, instead of you know, having crises and having to go to the emergency room or having to be hospitalized, they really just tend to re retreat and withdraw. They're so anxious. They become more and more withdrawn over time. Their world gets smaller and smaller. And so they, they, they tend to be really homebound rather than accessing the psychiatric system all that much. And to me, it's always so interesting to see patients who are excruciatingly unable to function, yeah. and yet you, you look at their history, and they've never been psychiatrically hospitalized right. before. And they really can't do anything for themselves. Yeah, I never, I, when I did my residency in um, New York City, um, I never saw anyone with OCD right. until I left, really. And I think that that was where the, the folks at Mass General who had uh, an outpatient OCD clinic where they were primarily doing research and you know, running a lot of research uh, med trials and different things, that was really where they were seeing these patients is that a lot of them didn't qualify for the research studies because they were too sick or they were too complicated. They had all these other complicated psychiatric problems. And they they really were sorting out, like, well, what do we do with these people who, you know, they can't get out of their houses to get to treatment, or they really are too sick to be treated on an outpatient basis. And even if they made it into the hospital, nobody really knew what to do for them once they got there. Right. And they really needed something that was very specialized, very targeted for the disorder that they had. So what would it be that would stop people um, getting out of their houses? Well, for a lot of these people, it, it, it starts off, it can start off very small, and then like any illness that doesn't get properly diagnosed or treated, it just gets worse and worse over time. So, you know, for almost any of the, you know, you can take some of the most well-known OCD symptoms, worries about dirt or germs, uh, contamination, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, when it first started, I was still able to function, I was still able to go out of the house, I just had to wash my hands a lot, or I, you know, used a lot of Purell, or I, you know, opened the door with my shirt sleeve, and, but they were still able to get around and function, go to work, but then the, the more that they were ritualizing, the more that they were giving in to the, the symptoms, the more things felt contaminated to them, the more their world began to be limited and the less they were able to do. And, you know, little by little over many years, they were able to do less and less. They were able to go fewer and fewer places to the point where they weren't able to leave their homes. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a very common progression of symptoms. Whereas if they had been diagnosed and treated very early on in those early stages when they were still able to function, they probably would have gotten better fairly quickly and, you know, would have, wouldn't have become so, so impaired. So I think that that's part of the problem is that a lot of people don't get diagnosed and treated early on 
in, in the process, in the disease process, and, and therefore their symptoms get much worse than, than they have to. People aren't being diagnosed. I mean, part of the reason is they're not coming to the, they're not full of fireworks like, like someone who's manic or um, crisis oriented mm -hmm. coming to the hospital. So that, so That's part of it, yeah. I think, I, think, um, I think there's a lot of shame about the symptoms. I think people don't always understand that what is happening to them is actually an illness. They think that they're weird. They think people are going to think that they're weird. Um, and they, so they're ashamed of what they're doing. They don't tell anybody. Um, and I also think, although I, I do think this is improving, even over the time that I've been working with OCD patients, that um, they would go to medical professionals, and medical professionals would not understand what was going on with them. And so, you know, you'd have people that had actually been in treatment for many years with somebody who was really doing all the wrong things, which was really discouraging, I think, for you know, for us being a patient that was really sick, but also for the patient to see, like, oh, they really tried to go and they sort of recognized that something was wrong with them, but they, they really got the wrong treatment because the person they saw didn't recognize that what they had was OCD and not, you know, not something else. Yeah. And it, this, this part of that, I want to talk about why we um, treaters may, may miss it mm -hmm. um, a lot, but something about that shame almost feels part of the obsession, you know, that um, there's something um, often, seems to me, um, shameful about some thought, like a, a mother I, I, with an obsession to hurt their child, right. or um, a man thinking that he wants to have sex with a killed child, exactly. and it's so horrific that it right. gains ground. Could you say Correct. something about that phenomenology? Yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, particular OCD symptoms like the ones you're mentioning. Um, you know, people that have intrusive, violent, or sexual thoughts, specifically where they worry that they might harm somebody that they love, or you know, or a stranger even yeah. that they might act in a way that is completely out of character for them. Um, and to be clear, I mean, people with OCD never act on these thoughts. They're very distressed by these thoughts. And just to differentiate between people who actually act on these thoughts or who get pleasure from these sorts of thoughts. Um, and I think it's always important to make that distinction that people with OCD who, have, who say, well, I worry that I'm going to molest my child, they're not fantasizing about molesting their child. They're not getting any pleasure out of these thoughts. These are intrusive, distressing, incredibly you know, horrifying thoughts for them. They've never acted on them. They have no history of acting on them. Um, and it's that, it's that grating with their sense of themselves correct. which gives, gives some of the obsessions exactly. its energy. And, right, and that's exactly what they do is that they get the thought and then it takes on sort of a life of its own because then they begin to say, oh my gosh, I've had this thought. Well, what does that mean about me? Does it mean that I really want to do this secretly? Um, you know, maybe I really am a pedophile. Really, I am a, you know, an axe murderer deep down inside and I just haven't, you know, hasn't come to the surface yet. So there's, it, it does, it sort of becomes sort of a, a, an energized obsession that they then gets a lot of traction internally that they begin to worry about. But um, just to emphasize, 
people who fantasize, no, people who are having obsessions about harming their mother or harming or having sex with children or um, or something a lot less, a lot less um, shocking um, are not at higher risk of perpetrating. And I think actually, you know, in in the past, or you know, actually not not even in the past. I think that there are cases, even more recent cases, where people would go and talk about this. Um, with their doctor who couldn't understand what to do. There were cases now. This was back in the 1980s where you know people actually had their children taken away from them. Right. So there's there's some you know truth to their fears about confessing them. We'll be back in a moment. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit CyberTipLine.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. 
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, this is Mark Green um, standing in for Mary Woods today. Um, Diane Davey um, from the OCD Institute and Foundation um, is here with me. So we're just talking a bit about how um, people come and perhaps um, have some shame around their symptoms, um, but that treaters or therapists wouldn't necessarily pick up on their um, what they're describing. Um, and I, I mean, I trained at quite a psychodynamic institution and you're always looking for the hidden meaning behind what people are bringing and so it's very hard for me to make that adjustment when someone was saying oh you know I, I, I think I, I, I have this thought in my head saying kill, kill your mother mm-hmm. um, to not try and interpret it or just have a little part of me sort of keeping in mind, well, there must be some right. hidden anxiety which I need to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about the treatment model that you might use and how that, how that um, because I think it, it clashes in some way with that uh, model. Right, 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 because I think what the treatment for OCD is really not about trying to figure out where the thoughts come from or what the thoughts are about or if there is meaning behind the thought. And in some way, that's what the patient is doing um, that's so troublesome, you know, is that they're trying to figure out what the thoughts mean, you know, really about them. And I think for us, once we've recognized the fact that the thoughts are obsessions, you know, what what we're really trying to do is to, you know, reduce the thoughts. Um, And I think it's, you know, part of what, what I think patients try to do is they try to sort of thought block. They try to say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to think about this. I'm going to try not to think about this, which, of course, you know, completely backfires because the more you try not to think about something, you know, the more, the more you're going to think about it. Mm-hmm. And I think in um, the treatment of OCD, we use something called exposure and response prevention, so it's a, I mean it's a little harder to explain in in a thought based kind of way in, in this example, but you know in in somebody that's having intrusive sexual or violent thoughts, for example, what we what we really say to them is we want you to think about this more. You know we want you to really sit with the anxiety that you know yes you might really hurt your child or you might really want to, you know, harm somebody that you that you love, we'll actually have them write detailed scripts about um, how they might harm somebody that they love. And it sounds sort of torturous, actually, when you say it out loud, um, but I think the idea of it is to have them habituate to the anxiety that that causes them. And it's... It, sort of to give a separate example, it's very similar to somebody that has a a dirt or germ obsession where we have them go around and touch things that they worry about are 
dirty or germy. So if the if we have somebody who normally avoids touching doorknobs or toilet flushers or um, the floor or, you know, anything that they perceive to be dirty or germy, part of the exposure part of the treatment would be to have them touch things that they would normally avoid touching or that they would always immediately go and wash their hands after touching and have them sort of stay in that anxiety state until they habituate it to the anxiety. So if you think about having them staying anxious until the anxiety comes down naturally rather than because they ritualized. So, you know, if you're sort of graphing their anxiety, if you think about, you know, over time their anxiety going up because they're in this anxiety-produced state because they're touching something that they're worried about, um, if they wash their hands, what you would see is the anxiety would come down automatically and, and right away because they've, they've washed and now they feel better. But the problem with that is... It really doesn't help them to get get rid of the anxiety over time, whereas if they are able to naturally habituate to the anxiety, it's you know sort of goes back to a learning model where they're almost retraining their brain to understand that if they wait out the anxiety long enough, it will go away on its own and and then they just need to practice that over and over again until they begin to have less anxiety in the same situation to start with, and the habituation process takes less time overall. So, you know, we we might have somebody touching the same objects for several days at a time for several hours, and something that caused them, you know, we have them rate their anxiety on a scale of 1 to 10. So on the first day, it causes them, you know, an 8 or a 9 out of 10, and it takes them, you know, almost two hours to get down to a 4 or a 5. By the end of that week, doing the exact same exercise, you know, what you would see is that their anxiety would only be getting up to a 4 or a 5 to begin with, and they would really be fully kind of recovered, if you will, from their anxiety by the end of the two hours. So the practice really helps them to habituate, and then the same situations really aren't causing them the same amount of anxiety. So the escape behavior that they engage in, like I... um which can be a thought, right? So, so um, oh, I want to kill my mother. Um, oh, so if I if I think two, four, six, eight, right. you know, it's going to distract me from that. Um, or I'm so going to say a prayer, and that will mean I won't kill my mother. Or, I mean, it can be something completely unrelated, even to the actual thought. Something but, that's just by accident they right. discovered exactly. would be the anxiety, exactly. like looking at a corner. Correct. So, so that. In that way, your brain learns that engaging in that escape behavior means reduction of anxiety, so you better keep doing that escape behavior. Exactly. And what you do instead is you, don't, you encourage people um, not to engage in those escape behaviors, stay with it. And how long can, that, can it take for that anxiety to come down naturally, habituated, yeah, you it say? Can take, it can take several hours. Um, you know, and and even longer than that for for some things that really cause people a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think people can feel the effects of an exposure, you know, 
for multiple hours after they do it. You know, again, I think what when you're designing exposures, we we work off what we call a fear hierarchy. So before, you know, exposures aren't meant to be done in this kind of willy-nilly way, we do have patients make essentially a list of feared behaviors and then we sort of rank them so that we're working up from things that cause sort of mild to moderate amounts of anxiety to things that cause much much more anxiety. And, and obviously you want to start with the lower level items and work up to things that cause more anxiety um, because what you don't want to do is put somebody into a situation where you know, they're going to have a panic attack right. or they're going, to, they're going to feel so much anxiety that the exposure is going to be ruined, essentially, that they don't end up habituating and then you really don't get that nice response that you're looking for and they sort of end up learning that exposures don't work when, in fact, if, if you had done it correctly, they really do. It must take an amazing um, type of therapist to find the balance between bully and supportive um, kindness because you're encouraging someone to do something which every molecule in their body is screaming, don't do it, don't do it, and and they've learned to escape. And you've got to be able to encourage them and support them to bear and to lean into that kind of anxiety-provoking situation. It is. And it, it, it goes against, I think, your grain as somebody in a helping profession because your natural inclination is to want to reassure people, to tell them that everything's going to be okay, to, you know, to tell them that things are going to be fine and, um, and in fact, you know, a, during, during an actual exposure, that's really the last thing that you want to do is to be reassuring people because you want them to, to stay in that anxious state during the exposure. And so you really want to make sure that you're not engaging with them in reassurance-seeking behaviors, which are essentially rituals for them. Mm. And it's, it's easy to fall into that trap, I think, even for experienced therapists at times. But you, you, so you, you want to sort of push. You sort of want to almost remain as neutral as possible um, during the actual exposure, I think it's best to sort of explain what you want to do in the beginning, have the patient sort of carry it out as best they can with you there as a support and to direct a little bit, to be sort of a director of the exposure, but not to be having a lot of emotion around what they're doing to sort of, you know, direct them and to remain fairly neutral because a lot of patients will even try to glean a lot from your emotional reaction, your facial expressions, and so I think it's always best to try to remain as neutral as you see whether you share their fear or disgust. Exactly. Um, Just a word on that learning process. Um, I haven't read anything more recent, I I don't think, but there was that great Louis Baxter study, I don't know how how many years ago, 19... Four or something, <laughs> um, but um, where, where he looked at um, a part of the brain, the chordate, which was crucial for habit-based learning, mm-hmm. and uh, people with compulsions had increased rates of, mm-hmm. um, had increased metabolism in that area, which reversed with yeah. for describing, yeah. or with, I think they used roxetine or yeah. an SSRI, yeah. and uh, showing that 
his treatment really helped that part of the brain which owes habit yeah. calm down and exactly. are behaving properly. Exactly. We'll be back in a moment. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Hey, Jack, you got a sec? Yeah, sure, come on in. Yeah, I was wondering if you... Jack, your hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I just need to finish this sales report, and then I'll probably... I don't know, let me lie down for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure it'll go away. But the flames are getting bigger. Sh- shouldn't I... Your hair, there's so much fire. No, 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 I'll be fine. What can I help you with? Oh, dear. Well, at least we know the sprinkler system works. You wouldn't ignore this, so why ignore the signs of a stroke? If you or someone you know suddenly experiences numbness of the face, arm, or leg, or is sudden trouble speaking, seeing, or walking, don't wait to get help. Call 911 right away, because time lost is brain lost. To find out more, visit www.strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE. This message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So, um, Mark Green, standing in for Mary, we are having an interesting conversation off air, so um, let's um, bring it back. So, we're talking about um, some aspects of engaging people, motivating people to do this work, um, because it's inherently repellent. Um, and um, we're talking about acceptance, commitment therapy, and it's overlap, or it's use applications to this type of work. And then, um, this is a type of work which... Well, maybe you can say something about it, um, but um, I'm interested in that, uh, if I bring it up. Um, but there's some pros and cons around helping people not avoid their anxiety um, when they need to be doing therapeutic, making therapeutic progress on that. So, mm-hmm. 
Right, and I, I was saying that I think there's there's really room for for both things because for a lot of these folks, as they especially as they get better, um, you know, number one, I think that they need they do need some motivational tools to understand why it's important to kind of go go through the pain of getting better, essentially, um, and and what it is that they kind of want out of their life. I mean, I think, you know, ACT brings into play that whole values assessment. You know, what is it that you, you know, really, how, how do you see yourself and what are your values and, you know, then what is your OCD, in this case, kind of taking away from you. Yeah, what's the and, point of doing any of Right, that? exactly. And then... Um, but I think it is an important question, and I think it comes up for for us a lot too. Is you know what's what's distraction and avoidance versus um, you know which may not be helpful while you're trying to do exposure therapy. But I think that as long as you can sort of identify what you're doing when and why, then you're really okay. Because I I think right. that's really the key. So, for example, sometimes you might not want to um, eat your food off the toilet bowl, um, you know, uh, because you're, you know, and, and it's fine to um, wash your hands and um, eat, um, you know, with high level of hygiene or something because you're going out with your in-laws. Right, like right. And so when when is it okay to... Would you, would you call that avoidance or would you call that giving in or would you just be... But the orientation using what's the point here, what's the mm-hmm. goal to live a full, functional, free life right. help right. orient you. Right. And I think it's, you know, some of the, especially the cognitive therapy um, skills around sort of reassuring yourself. It, it comes up sometimes where during exposures, we, we really don't want people doing that because we see that as sort of a, you know, as a ritual. Yet at other times, we encourage people to have sort of coping statements that they use so that they can kind of get through the day. You know, if they're going to work or they're going right out with their in-laws or they're doing things that normally before they would have avoided altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but they need to sort of reassure themselves in some way to get through, you know, the anxiety of, of getting out and doing something new, then, you know, sometimes that's okay. And so, again, you have to sort of look at the larger picture and saying, okay, well, here, here I'm doing something that I, you know, a lot of times people say, I haven't done this in 10 years. So, you know, that's really the point is I'm no longer avoiding this, you know, whole process of, you know, I haven't gone to the movies in 10 years. So if I need to go to the movies and sort of say to myself, okay, I'm not going to get AIDS by sitting in this seat, um, you know, that's, that's, that's probably okay, as, as long as they understand that that's what they're doing. You know that it's it's really for sort of this larger good that they're that they're reassuring themselves in that moment. Right, so that they can experience some reinforcement right. from exactly. real life instead of just reinforcement from the from the relief from the obsession right. with, an, with an escape. Right. Um, a word on medications. We've spent, spent a lot of time on um, CBT, but um, 
do you find that medications can be very helpful for? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think really what um, I know you were talking about that the Baxter study earlier, and I, I think that's been replicated over you know over time, but really. Still to this day, the, the tried and true treatment for OCD remains the combination of medication and therapy together. So, um, you know, I think that's always what we are recommending to people is a combination of, you know, now still primarily SSRI medications um, and Such as behavioral therapy. Prozac. Prozac, Luvox. Axel, yeah, Luvox is the big one, Selector, yeah, exactly. But also um, other ones like Benlafactine or, you know, Effexa and old favorite Mm -hmm. like Clomipramine. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, And then another thing I think which happens probably commonly in treatment is that psychiatrists are are scared to go to the doses that people need. You know, so standard doses for depression might be 20 milligrams of something like fluoxetine or Prozac, and you might need to go to 80 or 120 or... um, And um, the physicians get timid Mm -hmm. about using those levels of doses and the side effects that come with them, which are real. Right. Um, And that it takes a long time. For response, mm-hmm. this isn't just the two weeks, right. um, or it isn't just the twenty minutes from a uh, from a anxiety buster like Ativan or right. Clim- or Clonopin, but it might be six to eight weeks of high dose treatment. Exactly. Exactly. What about? Yeah. Sorry. Go no. Go ahead. Um, what about relapse rates? Like when you stop the medication, or you you can you complete the um, course of exposure response mm-hmm. prevention. Um, how how do things look over the next few years? Yeah, it's you know I think a lot of it depends on you know how how severe the symptoms were mm-hmm. to begin with. So you know I always feel like I come from such a skewed place because we see such right. sick people to start with. Whereas I think in you know an out traditional outpatient settings, you know, you can really see dramatic improvement for people on, you know, in a 12-week cycle of exposure therapy if, you know, if they get into treatment early enough and their symptoms are sort of on the mild to moderate end of the spectrum, you know, if and they don't have a lot of other psychiatric comorbidity going on, um, you know, generally people respond fairly well to this kind of treatment and, you know, can have, you know, if not complete, you know, fairly complete recoveries. And so for a lot of people, you know, the picture is is really positive and, and very good. And I think once they learn the tools and they learn to recognize kind of the red flags of, you know, you know, you hear a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, I didn't really have any symptoms for a long time, and then I had this stressful period in my life, and I, I began to recognize that I was having symptoms again. And I think that that's really good if people can, can all of a sudden say, oh, here, I can feel it, or I notice that I'm avoiding things, or I notice that I'm beginning to do things repetitively again, and they can kind of reach into their toolbox and remember what they did in their treatment before or even go back to treatment. Absolutely. 
That's really important because... Um, People have had a good grounding in this, mm-hmm. bring it up, um, and they can teach their therapist. Right. They say, hey, look, um, you know, I've got, I've got the worksheet, mm-hmm. or they know what to do. It's not a complicated formula, but right. they have the space right. that um, they can move through their anxiety because cause it's worth right. it. Right, and they've done it before. And they've done it before, and, and that they can apply this to many areas of their life right. Right. Um, over time. Um, can I ask about the role of the family in this as well? Um, so families often have obviously um, been living with their family member, maybe from adolescence, um, yeah. when this yeah. frequently arises for many years, bewildered and... Um, yeah, the family is hugely important here. And I think, you know, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, you know, how some of these people get sort of stuck stuck in their homes, and, you know, they're stuck in their homes with their family <laughs> and because that's who's caring for them. And what's, what's always really astonishing to me is the lengths to which family members will go to accommodate the OCD in, their, in the family members. And I think, again, in the way that the illness progresses, the accommodation of the family progresses along with the symptoms. And, you know, I've met with families where, you know, my, I think my mouth is agape at the lengths to which they will go to accommodate what the person in the family with OCD sort of insists on having done in order for them to not feel anxious. Can a can a um, anonymous example? Oh yeah, I mean there we've had you know people with contamination obsessions who have insisted that the entire family undress in the garage before they come into the house. You know, shower. They can only, you know, they can only wear certain clothes. They can only sit in certain seats. They can only go in certain rooms. You know, they can't touch, you know, certain things in the house. And if they do, they have to wash. They, you know, they control the entire place. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes along with it. With presumably a lot of resentment. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and then it, what's interesting is a lot of times the families are, you know, they they think that they're helping because yeah. they see that the person is so sick and so distressed. And, you know, like I said earlier, in the same way that the symptoms started small, you can see that, that this started small and it just got bigger and bigger and just took on a life of its own. And off to the break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just... I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom (laughs) and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. treat your child like an adult. So why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see! Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor and sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor and sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who will work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mark Green, standing in for Mary. Diane, we were talking a bit about the family and the role of the family, and you were saying that um, the family can inadvertently be reassuring and organizing the whole system, the whole family system around reassuring behaviors and, um, and, um, and so how do you... That, that can probably also undo a lot of the work that you do um, in your treatment. But how do you begin to engage the family? Well, we, I mean, as at the OCD Institute, I mean, we really insist that the family be involved in the, for that exact reason, that they, because 
they will absolutely undo all of the treatment, all of the hard work that we do with the patient if the patient goes home and knows that they can just reorganize the family around accommodating their symptoms and sort of making them more comfortable with their symptoms than without them. Probably the whole family is so accustomed to exactly. working in that way. And I think a lot of times, you know, the, the family... I think as I was saying right before the break, you know, they, they really don't know what to do. They, mm-hmm. they think that they're being helpful. They, they have a family member in distress who's saying that they need things to be a certain way. And so they, they do it because they feel like that's what they should do. And most of them really are just clamoring for education and really for permission to stop. And I think as soon as you tell them that they are making the OCD worse, by doing what they're doing, they, they're happy. They're, like, so relieved to be able to stop doing what they're doing and to have a good reason to do it, to mm-hmm. say, you know, I think when you put it to them that way, when you say, like, you're making them worse by doing what you're doing, most families can kind of get behind that and say, oh, my gosh, you know, well, of course we'll stop then if we're making it worse. Right. And they can, in what, you know, when you educate them, they can really understand the rationale for, for stopping. And as difficult as, as it is for them to kind of hold the line and to say no and to not give in, um, I think that a lot of them are willing to take that on because they, they really want their family member to get better, obviously. Right. And I think that's a lot of the family work that we do at the OCD Institute is, is educating the family and really helping them to kind of stand their ground against the patient sort of pleading with them to give in um, and to accommodate around the, the behaviors when things get difficult. And so I think that the treatment really has to include the family mm-hmm. with these patients because if it doesn't, you're just doomed. You know, it's doomed to fail. Right. And, um, and I think that it's, it's really, it's, it's so essential because otherwise, you know, like I said, you have these parents, you know, I've seen parents in their 80s still, you know, having their 60-year-old child, you know, mm-hmm. living at home mm-hmm. with the whole family organized around them, right. and it's, you know... Can't go on forever. Yeah, exactly. And um, as you were saying in the break as well, a lot of these, um, a lot of OCD onset is in childhood and adolescence mm-hmm. and teenage years, and uh, the family dynamics really get organized as, uh, you know, in compensating for this anxiety and just trying to be, do the right thing. Right. It might be nice. Very well. Um, but, but ends up probably being very um, um, regressively gratifying. So, um, you know, a neediness being relieved without a thoughtfulness and without helping someone move forward. So if you re- help them focus back on goals, what's the point of that? You know, independence and freedom and joy, um, then it helps the family um, move forward in a more positive way together. Um, we're a program that treats a lot of um, co-occurring disorders. Um, and how often do you see the intersection between OCD and drug addiction? We see it quite a, quite a bit. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, you, you really understand, and I think the overlap between just anxiety disorders in general and, and drug addiction, I think, can be quite high, especially in men. Um, we see it more in men. Different, um, different disorders in, in men and women, um, more perhaps... Um, 
PTSD, more novelty in men, more novelty-seeking and um, externalizing behaviors. Right. Um, in women, perhaps more um, anxiety disorders. Social phobia is a bit different mm-hmm. with alcoholism and yep. opiate dependence. But there are different disorders um, in, arranged by sex and I think for you know for us we really when we when we have people who you know want to come to the OCD Institute anyway who have you know a, a significant substance abuse problem we really like for them to be sober for a period of time before they come and to have a set of skills around their sobriety because if they don't typically what what our experience has been sort of in our earlier days before we actually had a policy like this was that we were just seeing a lot of people relapsing um, with their substance abuse because we were making them so anxious that the thing that they knew to do was to go and use drugs or alcohol to sort of calm themselves down. And so if what we found is that if people didn't have sort of a, a fairly sustained period of sobriety before they came into this kind of really intensive anxiety-producing treatment, that they really did not do very well. And um, Two very overlearned, maladaptive behaviors. Right. The assurance um, increased, rewarding the obsession uh, and the um, drug use um, rewarding the anxiety avoidance. Right, yeah. right. And it's hard because I think people sort of will say, well, if I can just get rid of my OCD, then I won't need the substances anymore. And I, I think that that's almost, it, it may be true in some regard that the anxiety was what caused them to begin to use substances to begin with, but in some way with the treatment, I think you have to go the other way and, and really have the sobriety come first because it... it, it well, with addiction, the, the anxiety yeah. tolerance is so poor. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, they, it's very quickly discharged as um, some impulsive drug use, which, right. which is a wonderful way of changing your thoughts right. and um, changing your focus of your anxiety. Um, but, of course... The drug use exacerbates the OCD in, in, in so many regards, right. too, particularly stimulants, right. um, Ritalin or yeah. cocaine. Or, right. um, but um, but the, the um, more sedating drugs also end up, once you become dependent, increasing the anxiety and therefore just generically through the anxiety increasing the OCD, right? Right, right. Um, and um, so you've really found that Treating both disorders. We've come to the end of the show. Um, I do want to say one thing about the um, Obsessive Compulsive Foundation. Your advocacy group has got a wonderful website. It does. I've used it myself for um, education and families and patients, mm-hmm. and I urge the listeners to check that out. Do you want to say the web address? Yeah, it's www.ocfoundation.org. Right. Check it out. Any other information you want to give out? No, I think that's it. The well, thank you so great. much for being Thank here. you. This was great.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.